open your eyes. You are a fisherman in the Pacific, a weaver in the Philippines, and a journalist on the front lines. You are a hunter, and you are the hunting. You're front row, backstage, and you're the one we came to see. You act with kindness, and you fight with courage. You swim the depths of the oceans and float the heights of the skies. You walk on top of the world. You watch the world fall. And you are someone else's world. You are with family. You are with friends. You are with ancestors. You are lost. You are found. You are tiny. And you are infinite. Live every story. Because when you learn to love a life different from your own, the world becomes a little closer. Open your eyes and live every story. There's lots of, lots of stories out there today, especially in college, especially here at Mizzou and Columbia College and whatever university uh, you attend, which one are you living for? Is it the story of wealth? No matter who you meet, no matter what the cost, the end goal is, let's get enough money. Is it the story of power and success and respect? You need to be thought of well by your peers, by your bosses. Is it entertainment? You've earned it, Word, had a hard day at school, hard day at work. You've earned, let's, let's go binge. Let's watch the next season. Let's watch the next show. We've earned it. Is it the story of sexual expression? My body's my own. I can do with it what I want, when I want, however I want, and nobody can tell me otherwise. Maybe it's the story of beauty. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to be a certain person for those other people to love you and accept you. Open your eyes and live every story. What's that story that you're gripped by or that you're tempted to follow? Are they living up to the hype? Are they fulfilling all of their promises or are they a little bit disappointing? Is it a little bit less exciting after every single time? I think if Jesus was directing that ad campaign, I think he'd only change one word. I think he would say, open your eyes and live one story. Open your eyes and live one story. You see, whether you and I know it or not, Jesus is actually telling one incredible story in the world. It's, it's not only true, but it's actually better than all those other stories. And, and this story doesn't disappoint. In fact, the longer that you live it, the longer and the harder you fight to stay on that path, it actually gets better and better and better. It's like a book that you read at the end of the chapter. You want to keep going. Or a show that the cliffhanger's over and you've got to start the next season. It's like that, but, but better. Do you, do you guys know that story? Are you, are you gripped by it in your heart, in your mind, in your whole person, or are you living for another one? Uh, some of you, uh, most of you I know, my name's Austin, and last week or a couple weeks ago, I introduced my family. I've got three very spirited kids. Adeline is seven, Tyler's five, Clayton is two and a half, and things can uh, escalate pretty quickly. 
at my house. We can go from zero to 100 like that, and you just don't even know what happened. The worst times, three out of four days, someone is screaming, and there are big alligator tears as we leave the door. That's not a, that's not a joke. A couple days ago, Tyler was supposed to wear a jacket, and the sleeves were too long, so I had to roll them up twice. Well, that wasn't high enough, so I rolled them back down. It didn't fit right, so we had to get another jacket. Adeline wanted her fifth My Little Pony keychain attached to her little backpack, and when that didn't happen, there were tears. Clayton, my youngest, he just has to have this blue blankie. It's got the little silver edges on there, and he didn't have it for, for preschool, and that was a real big deal because he wouldn't sleep, and then now we wouldn't sleep. It's always something. And so by the time we get into the car, and this is at like 7.15 in the morning, we all, myself included, just need to take a deep breath. And what I tell my kids, what I tell myself, is it's time to hit the reset button. We just need to hit the reset button. So I tell the kids, hold your arms up. They hold their arms up, and I just go, boop. It's a parenting moment. They're ticklish, you see, so it kind of helps them get past it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it, it doesn't. Wouldn't it be nice just to have a reset button? to wipe the slate clean, to start over, to kind of get over it, whatever it is, what would you like to reset in your life right now? How do you need to start over? What are you hoping that you could change about your past? Is it that major you signed up for? Is it the friendships that you've made? Is it a relationship that you're in? Was it what you did last summer? Was it what you did last weekend? Was it what you did last night? What is it? You see, maybe even a better question, a more important question, is if we really do want change, if we do want to hit that reset button, how the heck does that happen? How do you do that? Not just for a day, not just for a week, but for a year, for a lifetime. Tonight, we're going to continue our series through the book of Acts. It's a New Testament book after the four Gospels, and we're going to learn from a man who was just like you and just like me in a lot of ways, in the sense that he was in the grip of another story. You see, this story had had him. It consumed his thought life. It's what drove him. He woke up in the morning, and this is what he was living for. The guy I'm talking about is a guy named Saul. Saul is the same person as the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament letters that we have. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul's his Greek name. But before Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was living, as we're going to see, a very different life. And we get a picture of that life starting at the end of Acts chapter 7. You see, this this chapter documents the story of a guy named Stephen. And Stephen was the first Christian martyr, the first guy to be killed for his faith in Jesus. You see, in the story, Stephen was brought before a council of men known as the Sanhedrin. And we don't have time to get into a specific message, but all that to say, this message that he spoke about, which was about Jesus, it infuriated the Sanhedrin. It offended them so much so that when they heard this, they wanted to kill him. Pick it up in chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this message of Stephen, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, uh, the Sanhedrin, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voice, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we don't know too much about Saul's specific role, but what we can say for sure is that Saul was standing by, and Saul was watching, 
And Saul was very much approving of this stoning of Stephen. And this event, this was the spark that lit in a huge flame of persecution for Christians that are in the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, On that day, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, that's Jesus' original 12, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, and he put them in prison. See, Saul's a man out for blood. He has been given authority from the high priest to systematically track down Christians and their families. He'd throw them in jail, Didn't matter, no matter how old you were, no matter if you were man, woman, or child. He wanted you in jail. He wanted you dead. He would cast votes for these people's death. He loved of the story that he was living in. And then he met Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1, this is where we'll spend most of our time tonight. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, just a way to say Christians, follower of Jesus, anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Damascus is a city 135 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about a five to six day journey. Hot weather, rough terrain, not at all easy. But notice Saul wasn't given this task. He actually signed up for it. He said, send me. I want to go. And he knew what he was signing up for. I mean, think about it. He had to plan the whole thing. He had to get people to go along with him, had to get supplies, had to figure out how am I going to bring these Christians back to Jerusalem. This was a calculated and a strategic trip for Saul, which meant that he loved and was looking forward to what he was about to do. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up. Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And so the men traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. You see, when Saul met Jesus on this road to Damascus, everything changed for him because Jesus hit his reset button. Plain and simple. His life in this moment was turned upside down, or or better to say right side up. You see, God had big plans for Saul. He's going to play an enormous and crucial role in God's story. One that Saul could have never written for himself, never dreamed of in a million years. But before that happened, he had some things to learn. You know, I think in the same way, God has significant plans for every single one of you here tonight, yourself, myself. He wants to use us. He wants to use you in impactful and important and meaningful ways in the world. Ways that are going to spread his kingdom of love and justice and mercy, whether that's in your fraternity or sorority house, on your dorm floor, in your friendships, in that job, in the class. We could go on and on. Wherever you are, whoever you are, God wants his kingdom to come in your life. But like Saul, 
we've got some things to learn uh, before that happened. And so tonight we're going to see four things, four things, four lessons that Saul learned on this road. And if you want to live for God's story, the only story that really matters, the only one that is never going to let you down, the only one that is not going to disappoint you, then we've got to learn what Saul learned on this road. So here's the first one. Saul learned that he was blind. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. So this physical blindness, it's a, it's a symbol, it's symbolic of Saul's spiritual blindness. You see, Saul was a sinner. He didn't want to follow Jesus because he was blind to Jesus. He couldn't see him and he didn't want to see him. You see, to be a sinner is, is to want to go your own way. It's to fail to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God. To be a sinner is to, to know what God wants in your mind. Yeah, okay, I see it. And then you'd say, okay, God, see you later. And you want to go the opposite way. You are gripped in your heart and in your soul and consumed by something other than what God wants. That's what it means uh, to be a sinner. Later in the book of Acts, uh, Paul is, is retelling this conversion story to another group of people, and he says this. We get just a few more details about it. Uh, Jesus told him on this road, he said, When all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's a funny word, a goad. Don't hear that too much. Uh, a goad was, was, for lack of a better term, kind of like a stick that shepherds used to keep their sheep in line. See, sheep are relatively stubborn animals, and when shepherds would move their flocks, there'd always be a few who didn't want to go the way that they needed to go, that they wanted to go, the ways that the shepherd knew was best for them. And so they used these goads to keep them in line. And so when Jesus tells Saul that it's hard for him to kick against the goads, that Saul wants to go his own way. He doesn't want to do what Jesus wants him to do. He wants to go down the road that seems right to him, well, because he wants it, and nobody can tell him otherwise. I think this video captures just a little bit of, of what Saul was doing. Let's watch it. People have been curious about this for a while. So if you go back, and here's a beautiful example to the 1920s, a young scientist by the name of Asa Schaefer asked a friend, could you put on a blindfold? I'm going to take you to the edge of a field. And he said, what I'd like you to do is walk across this field in a straight line. Just stay as straight on course as you possibly can. So, the man headed off, and here is Ace's map of what happened next. The man starts to walk, and his route, as you see here, begins to tilt ever so slightly to the right. We're going to speed this up just a bit. Notice that the blindfolded man now starts to turn dramatically, taking him back to the road where he started from, and then across the road, and then around again, and then back again, and around again, and increasingly he's moving in smaller curls until finally he hits a tree and stops. All the while, he thought he was walking in a perfectly straight line. Strange? Well, there are many studies just like this. So, you know, Saul is doing exactly that. Saul thinks he's going straight. He thinks he knows the way to go, but all the while he's just, he's just going in circles. Is that, is that kind of sum up your life? Is that what you're doing? Do you think you're going straight when in reality you're just going in circles? God seems to think so, not just of specific people, but all of us. 
in the book of Romans, chapter 3, and it's interesting that Paul writes this because he can speak autobiographically. He writes this in Romans, chapter 3. It says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, that's just another way to say all people, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. turns out Saul's problem is, is our problem. You see, when you pull us out of the box, so to speak, the default settings are blind. We are blind. We are sinners. We can't see because we don't want to see. You know, we're sinners. Do, I mean, do you know that? Maybe you've been around church and, and Christianity and all that. You've heard, yes, you're a sinner. Head knowledge is good, but do you know that in your heart? Do you really feel that to be true? Or, or do you think that you can see do you think you can see? Because that, that's the message, that's the lesson that's being taught everywhere. That's the air that we're breathing, breathing that we can see. We're told that the only trustworthy guides are ourselves. We need to trust our instincts. And when we do that, we decide what to do with our free time. Nobody else can tell me. We decide what career path to choose, what to do with our bodies, how to spend our money, what friends to get, all of that. I went to grad school in St. Louis and would drive back and forth on the I-70. No, way too many mile markers in small towns. Anyway, there were all these billboards, always some, some interesting billboards, and I would always notice a couple uh, from some college universities. Here's one for Webster University, which is in St. Louis. It just says, you unlimited. You can see the message, right? More of you. That's what we need. According to Webster, the future is bright when there's more of all of us. It's a pretty optimistic view of, of people, yeah? How about this one from Missouri State? Follow your passion and find your place. Now, let me be on record. I am pro-finding your passion. I am pro-people finding a place. We have to do that. But, but you hear it, right? Loud and clear is the assumption that we know where to go. We can decide where we go. We can decide what we're passionate about. Nobody can tell us otherwise. No matter the destination, no matter that story, follow it, live it. These billboards, I looked it up, they cost $3,600 a month uh, to put up. Now, these universities are not spending $43,000 a year for nothing. Why do they spend it? Because they know it sells. They know students like you and future students, generations, are going to read that and go, yeah, that sounds good. This is the message we want to hear. It's going to bring more uh, people only it's wrong. Only it's wrong. We're buying into a lie if we believe that because we're no different than Saul. We're blind, we're sinners, and, and we need help. Have, have you learned that lesson? Second lesson Saul learned on the road is that he needed others. And so at the moment of Saul's conversion, God was working in another man's life in the city of Damascus. His name was Ananias. And so God spoke to Ananias and told him to go to this house where Saul is going to be. And initially, Ananias is like, say, what? You want me to go where and talk to who? You're talking about the guy who is on his way here to persecute Christians and to drag people like me into jail? No. And God says, yes, you need to go. And Ananias says, okay, fine, I'll go. He put himself out there. He took a risk, and he went to meet Saul. This is what happened in verse 17 of chapter 9 in Acts. Ananias went to the house where Paul, Saul was saying, and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. You see, the scales falling off his eyes, that symbolized the fact that Saul now has life. Now he can see. He is able to see where Jesus is calling. No more than he's able, now he wants to go where Jesus is calling. And catch this. None of that would have happened without Ananias. Ananias was the means that God used to give Saul life. After he was converted, he stayed in Damascus. Saul stayed in Damascus, and he was a completely changed man. Verse 20, at once Saul began to preach in the synagogues. Think kind of like a smaller church. Began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, and all those who heard him were astonished. They said, wait, isn't he the guy, the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now Saul is preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's had a 180. He's refuting and baffling people all over the place, convincing Jewish people that Jesus really was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. It's just another way to say that God's people of Israel in the Old Testament were promised that one day there was going to be this figure who would come and would restore the fortunes of Israel and make things right in the world. And Jesus proclaims himself to be that, to be just that. And so as Saul's growing in skill, there's, there's Jews, again, who didn't believe that, who didn't like that, kind of like the Sanhedrin earlier. And again, they plotted to kill Saul, has this dramatic escape out of Damascus, goes back down to Jerusalem. What's waiting for him there? Well, verse 26, he came back to Jerusalem. Saul tried to join the disciples. That's the larger body of Jesus' followers. But they were all afraid, not believing that he really was a disciple. They're skeptical. They think he's a mole. They think it's just a tactic to get in good with them, and then he's just going to blow them up, metaphorically. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. This is Jesus' original 12 disciples. And Barnabas told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Imagine if you're Saul. You've got to go back to the lion's den. You've got to go back to the very place where you commissioned by your bosses to go hunt down Christians. And you're now doing the exact opposite. And you're reversing those orders and those effects. You're scared. You're alone. Nobody else, none of the other Christians are going to believe you. You're isolated on the run, nowhere to go, enter Barnabas. He intervened. We're not told exactly how Barnabas knew of Saul's genuine conversion. All that we're told is that Barnabas risked his neck, risked his reputation, went out of his comfort zone. And again, what happened? What happened because of that? Well, Saul was able to move about freely in Jerusalem. He was able to speak boldly in the name of the Lord. He was able to follow the story that God had given him, all because of a person. Saul was able to be faithful because somebody else vouched for him. Do you see the fact that Saul needed others? And God gave him something as simple as a friend to free him up to do his will. Have you learned that yet? Have you learned that you need others? Are you still trying to do this whole live for God's one story thing on your own? If that's you, it's not going to work. Do you see a need to have Solid, close Christian friends in your life. Not at the expense of non-Christian friends. Not saying that. 
but good, close Christian friends who will encourage you to be faithful, encourage you to live out and play your part in the story. Or how about this? What would it look like for you to be an Ananias or a Barnabas to someone? Who are the Sauls out there on this campus right now? How do you think God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy might be furthered here in Columbia because you took a risk and you invited somebody in? Maybe somebody you would never think would want to be a part of a community or would want to learn about Jesus. Or maybe even right now somebody who hates Jesus. I don't know. I bet Ananias didn't know. Barnabas didn't know. But Jesus knew. And Saul knew that he needed others. Next lesson Saul learned is that Jesus is powerful. Captain Obvious. <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, a light from heaven flashed around him, fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So we see the power first through this extraordinary miracle. You got this bright light, you got this mysterious voice that's heard by other traveling companions, by the way, knocked Saul to the ground. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. What did Paul, what did Saul have to do? Again, other part of Acts where we get more details. This is what Jesus told Paul he had to do. I'm sending you, Saul, to the Gentiles to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Saul used to persecute the church, used to persecute Christians. Now he's encouraging the church. He's encouraging Christians. He's moving them to love Jesus. And the only reason any of this happened is because of Jesus' power. You see, Jesus has the power to grip your and my hearts. He has the power to change the direction of our lives. He has the power to change what grips us so that on a heart level, we go the total opposite way. We abandon what we once loved and now follow him. Let me ask you this question. In an honest moment, maybe you've had a conversation like this. Do you think anybody's too far from God? You think there's lost causes out there? Anybody beyond saving? It's a person across the hall, maybe the group over there, maybe a professor, maybe a friend, a family member. What about you? Do you think you're beyond saving? Do you think your sin is too shameful, too dirty, too horrifying for God? Do you think you're a lost cause? Maybe you feel like it, and I, I get it, I can understand it. You know, maybe you feel like you're weighed down by the life that you've been living in the past or the life you lived last summer. Maybe that shame and that guilt has blinded you, has weighed you down and has convinced you that God doesn't want you or that God could never save you. You don't know what I've done. Let me sit down and tell you, no, I, I get it, but it's wrong. Those are lies because no sin is beyond God's reach. No person is too far from God because Jesus is more powerful than our sin. You see, Jesus has the power to change the trajectory of your life. Nothing, nothing can keep Jesus from you. People who live every story, just like what that ad said to do, people who are living for every other story, they can be made to live for one story. It happened to Saul. If you're a Christian here tonight, it happened to you, it happened to me. If it can happen to you and me and Saul, it can happen to anybody. And that, of course, is the final lesson that he learned. That, of course, means that there's hope. 
Saul learned that there's hope. Jesus blinded Saul. He couldn't see a thing, and that symbolized Paul's blindness. He didn't see Jesus. But then Ananias laid hands on Paul. And in verse 18, we see that those scales, something like scales, immediately fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. God opened his eyes. God let him see. He wasn't too far gone. Turns out he was wanted by God. You see, whether you know it or not, it's actually possible to live for God. It's actually possible to live for that one story. If you think it's impossible, it's not. It's possible. The offer is there. The only question is, do you want it? At 51%, a little bit more than not, two steps forward, one step back, but at the end of the day, do you want it more than those other stories? As the music team comes up, I want to tell the story of another man who was about to travel to Damascus. His name was Hassan Youssef. His dad was the head of the president of a terrorist organization known as Hamas. And in the spring of 1998, he was in Jerusalem about ready to head up to Damascus to do business for his dad, for, for Hamas. You see, he was in their employee. He was working for them. And so one day in Jerusalem, they're getting ready to leave. He and a buddy, they go to just this local a coffee shop. They're kind of getting the game plan down, talking through what their next steps are, and this random guy about their age, just comes up and starts talking to them. A little bit, a little bit kind of weirded out. It's kind of weird. It didn't happen all, all the time. And pretty soon after the small talk, this guy invites Hassan and his friend to a Bible study. See, there's a local YMCA at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. He invited him to this Bible study. His friend turned off, said, no thanks, I'm out, man. But for whatever reason, Hassan, he was intrigued. He was interested enough. He was curious enough to say, okay, I'm going to go check it out. And so when he went to that meeting, he got his first Bible. This guy gave him a Bible. And in Islamic culture, it's very rude to not accept someone's gift. Gifts are very honored and respected. And so he thought, the least that I could do is start reading it. And so one day he started at the beginning. Started in Genesis. And he kept reading. Pretty soon he got to the Psalms, and pretty soon he got to the end of the Old Testament, and he just kept going. And after a while, he gets to the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. And when he got there, he heard and he read Jesus' words about praying for those who persecute you and loving your enemies. And that was a story that he had never heard before. He had lots of enemies he had been persecuted in ways that were unthinkable, been imprisoned at least five or six times. Multiple, multiple enemies, so much revenge and hatred built up in his heart. And he hears this message about loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. That was like nothing he'd ever heard. It's what he says when he read those words. He said, I was thunderstruck by these words. Never before had I heard anything like it, but I knew that this was the message I'd been searching for all my life. I realized the Israelis, they weren't my enemies. Neither was Hamas or others who beat me in prison. I saw enemies weren't defined by nationality or religion or color. Rather, the main enemies were greed, pride, and all the bad ideas and darkness of the devil that live inside of us. This meant that I could love anyone. Hassan meant Jesus. Jesus pushed his reset button. He gave him hope. If there's hope for Hassan, if there's hope for Saul, then there's hope for you and me. So the question is, do you want it? Do you want it? What story do you want to live for? Have you learned those lessons? Do you think they're worth learning? 
these last moments, I want to do something a little different. Just, just go ahead, wherever you are, close your eyes, put the phone down, and let's just pray. Let's pray with me. Right now, just in the silence of your own head and your own heart, ask God if there are things that you're blind to. Ask Jesus to show you maybe what what are you blind to? Open your eyes. If you need to learn that lesson of needing others in your life, ask God to bring those people to you. Ask God for help. Ask God to bring someone into your life. If you need to be that person, that Ananias or that Barnabas who invites someone in, ask God for courage to do that. Ask God to give you eyes to see who might that person be. Ask Jesus to show you his power. Ask him to change what you want on a heart level. Ask Jesus to change the hearts of others you know and see that their hearts would be changed, that they would stop living for every other story and they would want to come and live for this one story. Finally, ask Jesus to overwhelm you with a sense of hope. Ask him to open the eyes of of your heart and other people's hearts so that we all, that, that you may know the hope that we have in him. Ask Jesus to give that hope to others 